Well, here we are. Back again. Very far apart, but this is good. The window is all open. And um, we are going to bravely dive into White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. Before we begin, I feel like we ought to offer a trigger warning for anyone. Uh, We are two white women having a conversation about racism. Mm-hmm. We know that we may say the wrong thing or mm-hmm. say something that is offensive as we're processing our own complicity and our own responsibility and our own next steps. So right. I ask for that forgiveness and, and grace. Yes. <laughs> and like we've said before, I think in other uh, previous episodes, this is new work for me. And so it's fraught with <laughs> landmines is what it feels like, but but compelling too. So you can't not go there. Right. And I feel like why, why gift girls talk about this book or do this work. And part of our desire with this whole podcast is to be able to have conversations, to be able to have the conversations that we don't feel like we can have in church. Yes. And we picked this book. It's not about faith. It's not a um, faith-based exploration of racism. But it is written by a white woman to white people. Mm-hmm. And so that made it feel appropriate to discuss. But we are certainly on this journey as people of faith. So what is, yes. our, what is our journey as Christ followers in terms of doing this work? Yes. And that is what one of the first things I wanted to say is I wish we were in a circle of people having this conversation. Because... It's so important and so hard to do. So I wish that the folks who are listening could be, you know, faces in the room um, offering their thoughts and some of their vulnerable reflections and things because that's what is needed to move forward, to do what's being asked of us. I think in terms of like framing this as a faith issue, I can't see it any other way. And it... It um, is one of the most painful, and maybe this is my own (laughs) uh, coping mechanism, but it's one of the most painful parts of embarking on on some of this reading and some of this work and some of this reflection is how bereft my experience in the white evangelical church has been in regards to honoring people of color and empowering people of color and embracing people of color and sharing power with people of color. And I'm aghast at the depravity that becomes apparent to me the more I read, the more I learn. So that I'm sure is going to come up again and again from my standpoint. (laughs) Yeah, I think I will just jump right in and read. She has in here this quote by um, James Baldwin on the Mm -hmm. church. It's page 65. Mm -hmm. It is very convicting, but also it's the one thing in in the book that is about church. So I'll just read this. This is her quoting James Baldwin from a television talk show in 1965. He was responding passionately to a Yale professor's argument that Baldwin always concentrated on color. And here's his quote. I don't know if white Christians hate Negroes or not, but I know that we have a Christian church that is white and a Christian church which is black. I know that the most segregated hour in American life is high noon on Sunday. 
I don't know whether the labor unions and their bosses really hate me, but I know I am not in their unions. I don't know if the real estate lobby is against black people, but I know that the real estate lobbyists keep me in the ghetto. I don't know if the Board of Education hates black people, but I know the textbooks they give my children to read and the schools that, that we have to go to. Now this is the evidence. You want me to make an act of faith risking my life on some idealism which you assure me exists in America, which I have never seen. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he talks about more than the church, obviously, but I, that is something that I've been asking. Why is our church segregated? Mm -hmm. That the one place you would think that in Ephesians, right. all of that stuff about the wall of hostility has been torn down. So that's God's truth. And yet we refuse, we refuse to allow it. Yeah. It's like we keep that wall there, even though he says it's gone. Yeah. And so how have we come to that point? I was doing some, you know, down the rabbit hole type of reading last night in preparation for talking about this today, but just sort of like something that has captured my attention back when we talked about I think it was Phyllis Tickle, and you said how Pentecostalism began with like black leadership roots, right? And I come from a strong Pentecostal background, and I did not know that. And I don't even remember reading it. Like, it didn't stand out to me. That's how, um, and this is just going to illustrate the things that she talks about in this book, how I could be ingrained in a system, um, a church system, and never see that. And the article I was reading last night was like, you know, what are the black roots of Pentecostalism? And the woman writing the article, uh, I didn't print it. I could find it if I, if I need to cite it for anybody. But she was saying, you know, she was, I don't know, a doctoral student before she knew that the man who uh, was the pastor of the church on Azusa Street, which is, see, that's the like the piece that I hear from my heritage, you know, the Azusa Street revivals, you know. And I did not know that the pastor who was hosting them was a black man. Seymour, I think is his last name. And I also didn't realize that sort of one of the things that set that revival apart was the role of women in it, and you had mentioned that as well. And my experience in an Assembly of God church in a city that was more than 50% non-white was not integrated, but I thought it was. Like that's what's so strange about beginning to see some of these things, to, to be able to understand that my own whiteness would not even consider that a person that I would look up to would be black. Like to, to think about the roots of, of my tradition would not even cause me to wonder if he was anything but white. And that is astonishing to me. And my experience of reading this book has been moments of literal stomping around my house, like outrage, like complete and and she talks about, you know, white rage and things like that. And what I feel the most, I have a variety of feelings throughout this reading. <laughs> I feel so angry at not knowing that, that that is part of a heritage that I have that could have been different. I'm sorry. I yes. put words in your mouth, but there was this opportunity. Could have been richer, could have been more what 
the first church was, you know, which, which we talk about all the time, like in churches, you know, if we could be more like the early church. And then one of those, one of the things that this woman in the article was saying is, you know, new expressions of faith start very loose and, and organic and, and I'm putting, this is my word, kind of wild, you know, like loosey goosey, like here we go, this new thing is happening. And then it becomes a formal denomination or religion or whatever cap you want to put on it. And then the status quo begins to kick in. And so that was when women lost their leadership role in this movement um, in Azusa Street. And it became the Pentecostal denominations that are today with, with very few of them having black leadership or having female leadership, but a few still remaining. And that's such a loss for all of us, for everyone, an utter loss, you know? It makes me think of two things. One is the question she asks, mm -hmm. which is, at, when was the first time you had a person of color as a teacher? Yes. And that little exercise. And so I thought back and I thought back. And the answer for me, having been through four years of college, three years of graduate school, is zero. Oh. It's zero. And... How did you feel when you discovered that? As a white person, did I ever think about that? Did it ever cross my mind? Never. I was horrified. Mm -hmm. And that little exercise is just so compelling and yeah. simple. But the reason I thought of that was because you could have had someone to look up to that founded your denomination. Right you could have had that example as a young girl and as a young woman. And the other thing it makes me think of is it just points to the lie about progress, that even when there is progress, because that's, sort of that's sort of the thing I was fed as a child, was like, well, we used to be racist, and now we're working on it. <laughs> and as the meritocracy system is working itself out, people of color are having more opportunities. That was sort of the lie that I was taught. Uh -huh. And if I had looked around in my community, I would have seen that that was not true. Right. But just the idea that even when there was progress or is progress, the forces yes. of racism that are systematic kick in, like you yep. said, and erase that progress. Yes. So that it's not even an example right. for the future generations. Right. On page um, 41, this is an example of what you're talking about, I think. In the middle of the page, she says, and she's talking about um, Dr. Martin Luther King's speech, uh, famous speech from 1960, 19, see, I won't know. 63. 63. Right in the middle of the page. One line of King's speech in particular, that one day he might be judged by the content of his character and not the color of his skin. How many times have you heard that little line from the whole thing? Was seized upon by the white public because... The words were seen to provide a simple and immediate solution to racial tensions. Pretend that we don't see race and racism will end. Colorblindness was now promoted as the remedy for racism and white people insisting that they didn't see race or if they did, that it had no meaning to them. She tells a lot of stories in this book, which I really appreciate because it helps flesh out what she's talking about in, in a situation that I can completely picture and think, I could have been the one saying this, right? So 
there is, she does anti-racism work, um, diversity work with organizations and groups and everything. And there's a, a white woman saying something to this effect, you know, that she doesn't see color. And there's also a black man who is one of the leaders, uh, one of the um, facilitators of the group. And, you know, she's like, when I look at you, I, I don't see a black man. I just see a man. I just see a person. And I think his response, if I could find it in here, I would quote it. But his response is something like, then you don't actually see me. Because my experience in the world as a black man is much different from your experience as a white woman. And making these corrections that I've just taken on as, well, that makes sense. Like, that's, that's what love would look like <laughs> in my white view of the world. The frame that I see the world in comes from a white person's standpoint. And I did not know that. And she says that specifically in here, like that I would see the white way of seeing the world, the white opinion, the white, what makes sense to a white person as a human. That's just how people are and not understand. <laughs> no, that's just how one segment of people see things. And un unfortunately, it's the people in power. Um, which is what makes it so disastrous for all of us. Um. For me, one of the biggest takeaways, which is similar, is her redefinition of racism. Just uh -huh. that, so, and many, many other terms. But the way she talks about that racism has been taught to us as an individual experience, mm -hmm. that, well, if I don't believe that people of a different color are inferior, then I am not racist. And therefore, it's, it, it sets up that whole individualism and the uh, good-bad binary, both mm -hmm. of which she talks about really effectively, and it really was helpful for me. If nothing else, she has completely helped me redefine my definition of racism, um, and it opens my eyes to how the old definition excuses me from all responsibility mm -hmm. and perpetuates the system. Yes. So that once we see racism as a system that we are part of, that we were raised in, that we cannot escape, that we were socialized this way. We have to own that yeah. we are racist. Yeah. And that yeah. we see the world with this white frame. It's not an invisible, just human frame. Right. I love, in, it, in terms of stories, uh, the Jackie Robinson story. Huh. I, Because for me, that was my moment of like, oh my gosh. That is how I would have thought about the Jackie Robinson story. Okay. So I'm going to read this. What page are you on? Page 26. Mm -hmm. So she says, The story of Jackie Robinson is a classic example of how whiteness obscures racism by rendering whites, white privilege, and racist institutions invisible. Robinson is often celebrated as the first African-American to break the color line and play in the Major League Baseball. While Robinson was certainly an amazing baseball player, this storyline depicts him as racially special, a black man who broke the color line himself. The subtext is that Robinson finally had what it took to play with whites, as if no black athlete before him was strong enough to compete at that level. 
Imagine if instead the story went something like this. Jackie Robinson, the first man whites allowed to play Major League Baseball. <laughs> this version makes a critical distinction because no matter how fantastic a player Robinson was, he simply could not play in the major leagues if whites, who controlled the institution, did not allow it. Were he to walk onto the field before being granted permission by white owners and policymakers, the police would have removed him. Mm -hmm. And so that is how I would have thought of that story until I read that paragraph. Like, here's progress. Here's an example. Right. And certainly there is an element of progress to that story. But that, that kind of like shape-shifted in my brain right. how to think about these things and, and to examine the way we're told these right. narratives. As if someone finally caught up to us. That's what that story, that's what she's saying there. Yeah, yeah. And isn't that devastating when, yeah. you, when that hits you, you know? I, I put off reading this book on purpose, selfishly. You know, I had, um, I read several other things and I've done other studies and I've, you know, watched other films and had conversations and this sort of was looming, this book, White Fragility. And I remember, um, and I'm just saying that sort of to, hopefully this will give people courage, you know, to to take this leap. And it is, I'll say that. It does take courage to read this book, but well worth it, like well worth the pain. And I remember prior to reading this, a friend of mine, and she was asking me what I was reading and whatever, and I said, you know, and these are the ones on my, on my, next to my bed, you know, like here's the stack, right? And, um, and I had read some other things. I had read, you know, How to Be an Anti-Racist, and I had read um, Austin Channing Brown's book, I'm Still Here. And um, anyway, she said, well, I hope you're not reading the ones that are going to tell you you're a racist and make you feel bad about it. And this is the book that I worried was going to do that, right? And it took me some time to lean in. And, and she describes it right in the beginning and what you just said about the good, bad binary. The idea that if I identify racist parts of myself, like things that I do or say or think my behaviors, not my intentions. That's another big point, you know, for us as white people to consider. We want to be judged on our intentions and not our actions or words. And that, particularly as a Christian, we cling to this idea of goodness, right? That um, however you want to get there, you know, you were saved, you know, Jesus forgave you, you're, you're cleansed, you're, you know, and now you're living this life that you're going to be pure and blah, like the all light these, on the hill. yes, right? And so you can't possibly be racist. You can't be a good person and be racist. And what she's saying is, no, that's exactly wrong. A lot of good people are racist and they're not using the N-word and they're, they have friends who are black, they've married, they have children, they, you know, on and on. And yet, because of our whiteness and what that means and the power that that has in our culture, in a racist society, our comfort in that we're giving comfort all the time and we don't even know that that's what's happening. So it's ignorance and arrogance at the same time. Um, and these are things that I I grew up in a culture of uh, preaching conviction, and it honestly bounced off a lot of the time 
you know, like I was a good girl, you know, <laughs> I didn't smoke, swear, you know, I didn't mess around. I didn't, you know, like whatever, all those things I check in all those boxes. I'm a good girl. And so conviction was something I rarely actually felt. It didn't mean that I didn't confess. It didn't mean that I didn't ask forgiveness, but this work convicts me, which makes it feel really real and so long in coming. How could I be 52 years old and now be understanding what conviction is for? I, I underlined a lot from the introduction because it explains sort of why, what she's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And this convicted me, mm-hmm. page five, in a small way, just the very first of many mm-hmm. yeah. experiences from reading this book. <laughs> and she says, this book is intended for us, white progressives, who yeah. so often, despite our conscious intentions, make life so difficult for people of color. I believe that white progressives cause the most daily damage to people of color. I define a white progressive as any white person who thinks he or she is not racist or less racist or already gets it, quote unquote. Yeah. White progressives can be the most difficult for people of color because to the degree that we think we have arrived, we will put our energy into making sure that others see us as having arrived. Mm -hmm. None of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives, engaging in ongoing self-awareness, continuing education, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practices. Yeah, so true, right? So that floored me because I was raised conveniently for white supremacy as as a force mm-hmm. uh, i was raised to think that racists are you know violent neo-nazis mm-hmm. that right. are per- perpetrating violent hateful acts and using horrible words that is a very convenient definition for a white progressive mm-hmm. and it allows the force which is white supremacy to continue unchallenged by right. white progressives right I love this birdcage metaphor. Uh-huh. I just think it was so helpful. You know, I'm, I'm an Enneagram 4, so I just love the metaphors and the symbolism. <laughs> she says, uh, Scholar Marilyn Fry uses the metaphor of a birdcage to describe the interlocking forces of oppression. If you stand close to a birdcage and press your face against the wires, your perception of the bars will disappear and you will have an almost unobstructed view of the bird. If, you're tu- if you turn your head to examine one wire of the cage closely, you will not be able to see the other wires. If your understanding of the cage is based on this myopic view, you may not understand why the bird doesn't just go around the single wire and fly away. Mm-hmm. You might even assume that the bird liked or chose its place in the cage. But if you stepped back and took a wider view, you would begin to see that the wires come together in an interlocking pattern, a pattern that works to hold the bird firmly in place. It now becomes clear that a network of systematically related barriers surrounds the bird. Taken individually, none of these barriers would be that difficult for the bird to get around, but because they interlock with each other, they thoroughly restrict the bird. While some birds may escape from the cage, most will not, and certainly those that do escape will have to navigate many barriers that birds outside the cage do not. Mm. That is a powerful metaphor, isn't it? Yeah. It was really helpful for me. Mm -hmm. I remember last year, right after Breonna Taylor was killed, I think, is when Nadia Boltz Weber had... I don't know if this was on Instagram. It was something, you know, that she had put out there 
saying to white people in particular to get curious. Like if you don't understand the reaction here or the the depth of expression, the what's the word, the magnitude, you know, of the reaction, then you need to get curious. And so oftentimes we think we understand. We think that like we're right up close and that we we can project all of those misunderstandings onto the bird, you know, like what's wrong with that bird, you know? (laughs) And we can't examine our own position that puts us um, in place to only see it that way. That's a really powerful metaphor, I think. I think the parts in the beginning are encouraging in terms of moving forward. So, you know, like if this is something that is new to you like it is to me, then what you read before about as a white progressive is somebody who considers themselves like already getting it, already, you know, um, excuses themselves sort of from being a part of the problem. And I'd like to say a little bit more about that. Like one of the questions that this book made me ask myself is, what are the things about my life that give me reasons to excuse myself? I wrote it down, so I'm going to just turn the page here and read it because I wrote it better than what I just said. What claims of exception have I made? How do I think that I'm not part of it? Um, So I just want to finish the thought about like, Going back to page five, what you said about none of our energy will go into what we need to be doing for the rest of our lives. And that's what gives me courage to even have this conversation is this commitment to do this for the rest of my life. And hearing that honestly as a calling from Christ, you know, that this has to happen. It should have been happening all along. Like this is what the church should have been doing. And what she says is, you know, engaging in ongoing self-awareness. And I ask myself, like, as a Christian, is that not what I want? Of course that's what I want. Continuing education, continuing to learn and unlearn, relationship building, and actual anti-racist practice. And those are the things I want, you know, so that gave me courage to, like, keep reading and keep moving forward, knowing that this was going to touch on things that I didn't want to see about myself or that would make me feel sad or would outrage me or you know it's uncomfortable and moving forward agreeing to put yourself in an uncomfortable position I think is one of the first steps so I wanted to say that but and one of the things she does well that gives me a lot of hope is that good bad binary and breaking that Mm -hmm. down and saying okay so it's all right that it's all right to engage in this work with humility, which she really does. Like, yeah, she's very like this is a very heady book, I'd say. I mean, it's talking about things that are deep and heartfelt and extremely um, emotional. But her approach is very. Yeah, she's defining terms yes. and she's yeah, kind of creating a landscapes for you to navigate and and making giving names to observations that she's acquired over the years. You know, white rage. Um, and in some ways, simplifying some of these things. Yes. Like you might have been Patterns. in a situation mm-hmm. where you, where we might have been in a situation where we feel that racial discomfort and we don't understand all the powers that, that might be operating on us. Right. And she explains all that and she simplifies a lot of these. As she says that some of the reactions that white people have in her groups are just totally predictable. Yes. To the phrases that people will use. Right. And she really, helpfully for me, unpacks 
what's behind that and mm-hmm. what what are the patterns that she sees because I haven't been in any of those I haven't been in any any um, workplace where we've unpacked this purposefully mm-hmm. and even like she approaches her own work on herself with such humility that I think she gives us a really good example of how to think about it. And she gives herself a lot of forgiveness as she keeps trying to do better. So she even on page 125 gives, or it starts earlier than that. She uh, has this wonderful section on the rules of engagement, white fragility and the rules of engagement. Mm-hmm. So she gives like the existing rules um, and then she gives like an alternative set of rules. Uh-huh. Uh, and she says, and this is on page 125, feedback is key to our ability to recognize and repair our inevitable, our inevitable and often unaware collusion. In, recon- <laughs> in recognition of this, I try to follow these guidelines. Uh, and then she has a whole... Well, yeah. the, the guidelines start on the next page. That's exactly the bullet what I wrote in the margin right there is humility. That's the word I wrote right where you are. Yeah. Well, I read those. Read those two okay. points because okay. I think those are important. So she says, number one, and this is just, so she has a whole bullet list on the next page. But right. Number one, how, where, and when you give me feedback is irrelevant. She's talking about getting feedback on her own racism. It is the feedback I want and need. Understanding that it is hard to give, I will take it any way I can get it. From my position of social, cultural, and institutional white power and privilege, I am perfectly safe and I can handle it. If I cannot handle it, it's on me to build my racial stamina. And number two, thank you, as Mm -hmm. in terms of how she will receive feedback. But I think the bullet points on the next page are, are great too. Yeah. So she treats herself with humility and humor even Mm -hmm. in terms of how she is working on herself even as a person who teaches this, like this is her career. So that's really right. uh, inspiring and it's a, good, a really great example of how to take baby steps forward in my own learning in this mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. One of the words she uses a lot is um, grapple, yeah. which I thought uh-huh. was really good, like it came to mind yeah. uh, like that, that part of this is white people, for me, like me, grappling with all of this as right. I'm learning. Right. And you were saying something about some advice you got from your cohort about as you're learning all this stuff. Like part of the white frame is, okay, I have this information. Now I have to solve this problem. Right. <laughs> and that so is a temptation. Can you talk about what you learned? It's, on- it's been an ongoing experience for me this year to, to be alarmed, right, by the pain and suffering, right, that, that I can now see that I don't even know if I saw before. And then to feel like I, I have to find out what's happened you know so I'm gathering information and I'm reading and I'm watching and I'm listening and then that information is not that comforting you know like I'm starting to discover how real and how big and how um, devastating some of the the problems are that prior to I didn't have to I didn't they didn't affect me this way I didn't realize how they affected me I you know ignorance complete and then I want to do something I want it to change of course I want it to change (laughs) all of this it's so funny because I'm talking and I'm also hearing the voice in my head you know saying these other things and I'll just I'll try to like reiterate it because this is what's so frustrating and frustrating is doesn't do it justice like 
this cycle of going through this work. In my head, I'm thinking, Don, who are you to change anything? Like, who do you think you are? Right? So you have that thought, arrogance, right? And, and then the other thought, but I have to do something like people are suffering. And yet, if I jump in and do something now, not really being aware of even how, what needs to happen, like there is, first of all, we all, oh, see, I just did it. We all, I don't know if we all think there is no easy solution. I don't know what the solution is. I'll just speak for myself. Oh. <laughs> and <laughs> there are some people out there who have some solutions and I don't know how to participate in them yet. And I had at the end of, you know, six months of, of meeting monthly and doing, you know, work and examining and trying to like, you know, pull my weight and do my part to unlearn and to learn. I was feeling this then what now? You know, like the, my cohort group was ending and what do I do? What do I do now? And uh, the young woman who leads this, you know, cohort for white people, she's, she's been doing this work a dozen years, let's say. And she's 20 years younger than me. Okay, so <laughs> applause, right? I hold this woman in high regard. And she said, you know, a lot of times we want to just become consumers of this. Like we just want to take it in and take it in and take it in. And I definitely fall into that category. I just want to read the next thing. I just want to find out the next thing. Like I'm going to solve racism. I'm going to lay in my bed at night and I'm going to solve it. I'm going to wake up in the morning and know exactly what to do and get on this you know, train and fix this baby. It's ludicrous. It's completely insane that I would even have that Thought, and I don't even know how insane it is because I'm having that thought. <laughs> <laughs> so she just said to me, this is when you just need to sit back and let the work sink in. Like you have to let it sink into you. Get still. It's not going to go away. You know, like reaffirm that commitment. I do this all the time in myself that I'm not going to get discouraged and let it drop. You know, I'm not going to, you know, get off the bike or the treadmill and never get back on it. I'm going to get back on it. Some of that has been framing some questions for myself, you know, and doing some of my own journaling and writing. It's been having conversations with my children. It's been having conversations with you and, and other people I trust. It's been watching the news on a regular basis, which I never did before. I am ashamed of that. That is just absurd to me. I understand the reasons why I didn't in terms of how I was raised and the kind of person I am and my personality type and how I think and da-da-da-da, how it wouldn't suit me. And yet, how oblivious I have been to what happens around me and still calling myself someone who cares about what happens around me. <laughs> so... These are all things that I am repenting of and trying to do something different. I can't even say turning around because I'm not even quite sure what 180 degrees would look like, but they are changes. So letting some of that sink in and sort of doing the next thing that presents itself, because I do believe that the spirit speaks to all of us and there will be something kind of laid in front of you and we have the courage to take it. So that 
is still true. Or find ways to speak it when we see it. Yes. Now that we see it. I know. And I think that talking about it, it's hard because we've been, one of the rules of white engagement that she says is never talk about it under any circumstances. Right. And, and so one of the things I've been wondering is, well, how do we talk about it? Because we're, we're just going to say offensive things. Yes. Right? So then, okay, so we need to talk about And I think maybe I heard this from you from the cohort that it's important for white people to, in a way, talk to each other about it. Yes. And that's she says of, this too. Oh, does she? Okay. Yeah. So um, I listened to, I haven't heard Robin D'Angelo speak other than um, on a podcast with Krista Tippett. And I just re-listened to it last night. And um, she's in a conversation with Krista Tippett and Resma Menicum. Um, and he's a black um, therapist uh, who talks about the pain that we store in our body, you know, that historically comes down to us, you know, and how to heal from that. And both of them were saying how important it is to refrain from going to your friends who are people of color to ask them to educate you you know like these are things that in the beginning it seems irrational like of course I would go to them and yet you're asking someone to explain how I understand the pain of that is that I would be asking someone to explain to me something they've seen all along that I've never seen that has been causing them pain that I didn't know. And so it's very intrusive and harming and, and we have so far to come. Like we're not ready. We are babies. Like one of the things she says in the beginning of this book is we haven't built the stamina to have these conversations. And so we are these babies like with razor blades, basically wanting to go into the room and, you know, be around people who are fragile and we don't even know that's what we're doing. And then we get offended and angry and we stop the work. You know, we get hurt, we pull back, we get angry, all these things start happening. And really those reactions, this is one of the deepest takeaways for me is one all of those reactions, if we let it, it will stop the growth. It will stop you from continuing on like well what can I do you know and I tried this and they told me to go away or you know like when you when you feel like you're offering assistance or care or you know like when you're in that benevolent person and that gets rejected and honestly this is the frame in which I have seen myself more often most often in relation to people of color is that somehow I'm the benevolent one helping. And that is one of the things that has kept me from doing anything right now. That that is not the role that I am called to be right now. And back to your question of, you know, how many teachers have you had and that kind of thing, you know, and I I did that question too and I had one teacher in high school who was a black woman who taught biology and I had a boss who was a black woman. Uh, one of my first jobs out of college. Her name was Jean. And what was I saying? Though I can't remember what I was going with it. What <laughs> Sorry, to do next? Interrupted. Right. You know, and that um, being—you don't want to be the benevolent one. Correct. That, that. Right. And we've and t- that, we, we've talked about that in other. I've talked about that with Scott with toxic mm-hmm. charity. That 
anytime we perceive ourselves as the ones being the benevolent one, it's a broken relationship. Right. right. And even the when we talk about the table, you know, as a metaphor for kind of the gathering of people and the connection between people and uh, what happens to your souls, you know, when you're in that community and how as Christians, and I would say particularly white Christians, we think that we're the ones always setting the table. We're always the host or hostess and rarely just another person sitting at the table. And I think for me right now, I picture more like I need to sit behind the table, like in the next row out, you know, and observe and try to listen, try to hear. I can listen, but to try to hear. And that takes time. Those were some of the things that came to me or helped me when I was feeling that frustrated, like, what do I do with this? And also acknowledging that part of the reason I want to do something is because I want to feel better. It again goes back to this like self-serving, I just don't want to feel this. And how important it is to have the courage to feel it, to stay in it. And what's interesting about that is you still wake up the next day. You know, like you still go on. There is still joy. There's still like those things still happen, like agreeing to see this and not push it away or, you know, do like, I don't know, what's the benevolent thing? Write the check, you know, so that you don't feel bad about the starving children anymore, you know, that kind of thing. And and not look at like, what are, what are you being called into? You know, what is being required of you really? And it's possible as challenging and <laughs> emotional. One of the other things I thought of when you were talking sort of the opposite of the uh, want to fix it thing. Mm-hmm. Um, like as this is sort of my own intersectionality, which is a whole word I've just learned about this right, year. Right. That as a woman in this work, like in life, because I don't perceive myself as a person of power and influence, yeah. I excuse myself. Yes. From what, like you said, what could I do? And examining the roots of that in my own life. Uh-huh. So, uh, and, and, it, and it serves to quiet a lot of voices. Hmm. Say more about that. I, I like, I want to Well, it's like one thing you. I thought of is like one thing some friends, my, a girlfriend of mine who's also an artist, a theater artist, is we were joking about why don't businesses or boards of nonprofits ever ask us to be on the board? They ask men who either are lawyers or, you know. They ask your husbands. Right. And so we were laughing about that. We're like, so we have nothing to offer a board? So that is kind of a silly example, but it kind of gets to the heart of it. Yeah is no one wants me on their board. I'm an at-home mom who does theater. Right. And, and so why would anyone need me to speak into the healing of racism in our community? Uh, you know, and so it sort of serves as a way to excuse myself. Yeah. Um, so just kind of reflect, like seeing that. And that being one of the ways in which racism has affected our entire culture that some people are valuable and some people aren't. Some opinions are valuable and some aren't. Once you start seeing that, it's everywhere. You see it over and over. But figuring out what to do in response to it, yeah, that's the, uh, maybe it's not even quite the next step. Maybe there's some steps in the middle there, you know? Because it feels like a leap. Once you start seeing it, you get surprised. You have to gather some more information, I guess. It's a journey. 
It is indeed. And that was one of the other things, too, that the cohort group was consistent in pointing out is this is a long road. This has been happening for hundreds of years. Like, this is not new. It's new to you. Welcome. (laughs) Just because you've come to the party, it's not going to get fixed right away. (laughs) You know, get comfortable. Like, get not in a... I've been saying all along, you need to get uncomfortable, get, get, but you know, this is the work. Like this is the reality. This is the, it's a plot, you know, it's every day. Well, and I do have faith that seeing the truth mm-hmm. more and more seeing, you know, like that we're not going to necessarily see it all at once, but starting to see yes. the truth, asking God to show us the truth as painful as it is, will set us free to, you know, you know it right. sounds corny when I say it like that, but I do have faith that the courage to see it, yeah, to see the truth is the first step to my participation in any kind of thing that might be a right. restorative act or a healing. I agree. There was something that she says at the end. On page 113, she says, In my workshops, I often ask people of color, how often have you given white people feedback on our unaware yet inevitable racism? How often has that gone well for you? Eye rolling, head shaking, and outright laughter follow, along with the consensus of rarely, if ever. I then ask, what would it be like if you could simply give us feedback, have us graciously receive it, reflect, and work to change the behavior? Recently, a man of color sighed and said, it would be revolutionary something that simple, something that all of us as Christ followers want, you know, to be able to hear and reflect, to repent and change revolutionary. You know, she brings this up in that interview and she's like, you know, it's such a simple thing and how incapable we've been of doing that. And I would say the church did not help me with that. That prayer of, you know, like, help me see, it did not help me with that. And this is one of the reasons why, is she has this list. I mean, the whole book is one of the reasons why, but she has this really compelling... Ah, here we go. Page 121. She has this list of assumptions that we as white people, as a group, tend to think and... I won't read them because I really do think these are gold at the end. I think these really like are gems to lead you down a road of um, examining and interrogating racist behaviors or tendencies, your whiteness. Um, and the, it's only the third one into the list and I underlined it because it really spoke strongly to me. I will be the judge of whether racism has occurred. Like... I will consider myself the authority. And I think so often in that prayer when I ask the Holy Spirit, you know, to lead me and show me, I'm still relying on my stamp of, you know, this is the this is the way, this is the truth, you know? And letting other people into that space to say, like, no, this is something that you did that is racist and it needs to change for me to be able to hear that and actually accept it and see it, own it and change it. I have to stop taking myself as the number one authority on 
What is the truth? Man, that is not. The only one I underlined, I'm just curious now mm-hmm. why this one I underlined. I underlined, it's about midway through the list. If I'm feeling challenged, you are doing this wrong. Mm. <laughs> so like the list, just to clarify, is sort of the stupid assumptions that white people make in these right. conversations about race or uncomfortable spaces. I am entitled to remain comfortable or have this conversation the way I want to have it. So those are some gems at the end. Well, I'm really thankful that we read this book. So am I. We had, I feel as like scary that, as it was. <laughs> yeah, that, that this is the beginning of... Um, as people of God being willing to have these difficult conversations and trusting that God will do something with it. Yeah. And continuing. One of the things that um, was important for me to hear, I, I was just recently that it was so well said in order to make the kind of commitment that I think is being asked of white people by the Holy Spirit and by our time requires, uh, Glennon Doyle said this, it, quitting. It requires quitting? Quitting, yes. She said, people ask me all the time in the work that I do, like, don't I get tired? Like, it, it's so hard to keep, you know, seeing problems and big problems and figuring out how to address them and that kind of thing. And like, how do I, don't I feel like quitting? And, and she said, yeah, I quit every day. <laughs> She's like, I, I get up and I work and I work and then I quit. And I, I highly encourage quitting. And that is something that I've had to apply. I have to set this down sometimes, you know, and watch the Avengers, you know, <laughs> and not the documentary. <laughs> um, I have to go for a walk. I have to talk about something else. I have to read a novel. I have to quit for a little while. But having the determination to go back, you know, and so that's the piece of encouragement. That's the prayer that I have for us on this journey. Excellent. Do we need to pray officially or is that enough of a prayer? Oh, this needs tons of prayer. So (laughs) (laughs) for us to say, (laughs) absolutely. (laughs) Would you pray for us? I would be happy to. Dear God, the creator of all of us, the one who loves us all the same, who sees in us, beauty and strength and fragility all at once. I ask that you would direct our steps, that you'd give us courage to see, that you'd give us the wherewithal and the, the stamina to hear, to understand and not rely only on our own vision or our own thought, but to look around, to trust our neighbor, to trust your voice. I pray that you would give us strength to continue, to embrace that there is also joy, that there is rest, that there is peace, moments of peace and pleasure that you've ordained in the midst of hard things. And I ask that you would grant that to us, um, grace for each other. And I pray that you would continue to abolish white supremacy in this country, that you would continue that work by your spirit, that you would help us to move forward, to move on to a clearer understanding 
of the beloved community that you desire to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.